are live. I'm just going to wait a minute for people to file in. Is this the first doctor we've ever had on Light Shed Live? There might have been a doctorate of somebody, but it's certainly not an, an actual uh, someone with a medical degree for sure. This is Dr. the first Mifei. one ever. Well, technically, I dropped out of medical school. I, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I have two doctorates in nutrition and epidemiology, but okay. going for it's the a, third was just too much. It, you know what? It's all good. You're the most highly educated person we've ever had on here. <laughs> Period. You win the crown. Oh, God. <laughs> Probably true. I always think life's about what you do, not the number of letters behind your name. <laughs> well, you have the most. Uh, I'm going to get started in one second. Okay. Uh, on behalf of Walt Pysik and Brandon Ross, I'm Rich Greenfield. This is the next edition of Light Shed Live, and we have a really interesting uh, discussion today. I think we've had so much interest in the topic of, of COVID-19 and the pandemic and sort of where do we go from here? And um, Eric Ding uh, really was the doctor that sort of, um, I, I guess the best way to say it is you were the one who called the first alarm on this back in January. And uh, I, I guess if we could go back and rewrite history, everybody in the entire world would have listened to you in January and paid attention to what you wrote uh, on Twitter on that kind of infamous January night. We can't go back, obviously, and, and recreate where we were. Um, but I know that you have strong feelings about sort of what we should be doing and where we're at. And so I guess on a day where there's just so much, um, there's so many different things happening. I mean, LA Public Schools just went all online. Hong Kong Disneyland closed today. Movie theaters are closing again. It would just be great from a very high level for, for us because I don't think anyone on this call, everyone on this call is either works in the media industry, works in the tech industry, or is an investor in one of those industries. No one is an epidemiologist. Nobody has um, your type of training um, in health science. How do you assess where we are today? We'll start off first as a country and then maybe talk about the global environment. But just as, as, as you look at the U.S. situation, what's your assessment of where we are? Right. And thanks so much for having me here. Um, I always like talking off the beaten path of people who you know, really need the information, but it's, the information is so complicated to digest sometimes. And in certain ways, I wish I was wrong in January. I you know, we would all be much better off if I was just an over alarmist, but the signals were really bad. And the signals show that this is not, and, and we knew it was not your typical um, pandemic. Because I remember the H1N1 pandemic of 2009, the swine flu. It wasn't even close to this in terms of the infectiousness, in terms of how easily it spreads and keeps carrying, and how severe it is. Because by severe, I don't just mean number of people sick. I mean also number of people with very long hospital stays, and after they're out of the hospital, very long chronic conditions, like chronic fatigue. There's a lot of brain, uh, um, brain um, potential damage as well in, in terms of memory loss. Um, there's also a lot of heart disease. It actually might cause diabetes as well. Every, almost every major disease under the sun is somehow affected by this. And that is just an epically bad sign. And the fact that, you know, there's a lot of debates of potential reinfection. 
Some people say it doesn't really happen or they say maybe it just happens one in a blue moon. It clearly, we have lots of cases of it. And we have kids who also have very unique inflammatory diseases. So this disease is not a laughing matter. And whether it's 1% mortality or 2% mortality, that is equally bad. In certain ways, if this disease was more fatal, it would have fizzled out and just died out. And it would just flamed out right, right away because it would have killed the number of hosts way too quickly. Um, but this is like the perfect combination of really severe, really infectious, kills a small part, and at the same time, you know, will ruin schools and our children's development because they're not in school for generations uh, as well, potentially. So this is why I'm really concerned about so many different dimensions of this virus. And the WHO just finally were kind of like dragged along by 239 aerosol scientists who say this virus is airborne. And so I want to make clear, up until now, there's been two previous methods that we recognize. One is fomite, which is another fancy word of saying surface. I touch a door handle, I touch my face, I get it. That is seemingly less and less common. The other is droplet. Droplet is, another way of calling droplet is ballistic spit. Basically, you spit it out, but the sort of like Brandon on an average day. I was, yeah. I was literally, <laughs> I was, I was literally like about, about to say that rich. Yeah. <laughs> he like just cut that off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Deflect. Yeah, Deflect. It's, exactly. Okay. But basically, you spit it out and gravity pulls it down. But before gravity pulls it down, someone else catches it, right? Ew. It's like a bullet. Um, but it's still gravity down. Uh, define. The problem with that is that that is not the only thing. And the other thing is these micro droplets that are aerosols that float in the air for 10, 20 minutes, even days. Days. And we know that, and Japanese researchers have known that for a long time. And Japan, by the way, has, for most part, kept it contained because they, without a lockdown, um, because they basically assumed that it was airborne, airborne from the start. And they ventilated. And I think we'll get to this later, but ventilation is just so critical. And so many of our office buildings and schools are just not ventilated at all. And, and so, but the problem with this aerosol, airborne, is that the six-feet rule doesn't work anymore. Because the six-feet rule was like basically distance of your spit, ballistic distance of your spit. But it doesn't work. Um, it, it, it works not, outside. It doesn't work inside. Is the distinction you're trying to make, or is that not even true outside? Well, outside, the thing is, outside, there's a lot of outside gets the ventilation part. A, there's UV light that kills from the sun. But outside, there's so much uh, airflow. You know, there's more airflow in the gust of wind than your air conditioner can make, you know, in, all day long. And, you know, in certain ways in environmental health, they say, the solution to pollution is dilution. And whether it's oil spills, I hate to say it, but oftentimes they don't get cleaned up, they just get diluted away. Or any toxin, you vent it out. Um, and so with the virus, if you vent it out on the outside, it's less of an issue. So in terms of indoor distancing, it's an oxymoron. I don't think there's such thing as indoor distancing. Um, I interject and an outdoor question. If I'm on a roller coaster and someone's sitting three rows behind me, 
is that is that blowing it away or is that does the because if it's not ballistic then i'm not worried about getting hit in the face or in the nose but well, like, i think the total so is that okay then you know depends on how much the person in the front is screaming but the, oh. i think it's the total air volume okay look there, it's, can, well, it's, can i can i just follow up on that with a question yeah. that's very specific to our stock coverage um so we cover it like the live entertainment business okay mm-hmm. and I was just I was kind of looking at the protests that happened over the last couple of months, and the vast majority of those were outdoor. I look at a city like New York City, where there were there have been tons and tons of protests, yet zero the rate deaths. of transmission has continued to stay extremely low. Right. There were zero deaths in New York City right. for the first time yesterday. And then I think about concerts. Can outdoor concerts with masks actually happen? Are those actually safe and sort of equivalent to the outdoor protests that didn't cause um, um, any additional problems? Yeah. yeah, I think outdoor concerts... Now that we have a bigger understanding, I think outdoor concerts are much lower risk. Like it's like when you drive a car, there's always risk of an accident, right? Nothing is not zero risk. But I think the fact that the outdoor there's good dispersion, you know, and people wear masks, I think it's good. The issue sometimes is in concerts you get these mosh pits and lots of people, you know, just basically right. really grinding together and mass comes you, off. But if you had seated only instead of a general admission concert, if you had a signed seated concert, right, with mass, is that lower risk than going into my office? I think so. I would rather be outdoors right now than um, indoors. I'm indoors, but I'm the only one here, just right. so you know. Um, except for your, except for your air circulating, your neighbor's air in here, wherever you are. <laughs> There's right no now. one here on my entire floor. Okay. Uh, but yeah, we should talk about that air circulation because. But before we, but before we get to air circulation, sorry, but let's just to 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 build upon what Brandon just said. If if you're okay in a CD concert, then I'm okay at a football game because I'm sitting next door next door to someone. If you're if everyone's required to wear masks, then theoretically outdoor sporting events should be fine, also. Yeah. And so this is where sports gets complicated. I think it depends on the sport. I think if it's outdoors in a big mm-hmm. open stadium, open yep. stadium, I think it's really potentially good. Indoor stadium depends on how do you, the ventilation. How do you find indoor though? Like the Cowboy Stadium is indoor, but that thing's massive, right? And plenty of air circulating through there. Yeah. Well, what is the recirculation? I don't know the you know the recirculation volume of um, Cowboy Stadium is. Look, yep. this is this is you know in certain ways I'm not an aerosol uh, environmental scientist who designs aerosol experiments, but based on what we know, I'm talking to countless aerosol researchers. It really seems it's the indoor, unventilated. Like the, the when the letter from 239 aerosol researchers went to the WHO, it was basically we need indoor ventilation, massive ventilation with the outside, or UV to disinfect the air. And, but obviously there's gray areas with these mega, mega stadiums that are kind of covered, right? I don't, I don't have a good answer yet. I don't think anyone has a perfect answer. Obviously open air entirely is better because also the UV also kills it. Um, But altogether, I think certain things, the smaller the stadium, you know, basketball stadium, hockey stadiums, trickier, right? And some sports, 
like fo- the other thing is football, as you know, two linemen are crashing together. Yeah, well, There's that's a that, lot. That's, that's from the they, player perspective. Yeah, I think they can be. We, we were talking about the for, the, the spectator fandom, perspective. Yeah. So I, I think we understand. One, just one follow up for you on on the air, airborne um, piece of this is was that the result of a mutation in the virus, or is it just that that has research just didn't get us to the right place? Maybe it got you, but you know, for uh, well. I think, first of all, Japanese researchers were much more careful. Like, first of all, there's like two communities. There's the virology community, which studies the, you know, mutations. And then there's the airborne aerosol community, which, by the way, years ago discovered that there's no such thing as a smoke-free part of a restaurant, smoke air, smoke-free part of an airplane. And, and airplanes um, where, where the smoking section was like the next part of a swimming pool, you know? <laughs> and so... <laughs> So this is this is the analogy here, um, and and the mutation research maybe there is a mutation they call it the G mutation that makes it potentially much more stable and much more infectious, but we don't know if it's really that was that the reason or uh, it was a founder effect that it just happened to arrive in the new world and then you know basically everyone's blonde in Iceland because the Vikings first went to Iceland right. It's it's because it was a founder's effect, and so we don't really know for sure about that. But it could be part of a, part of the mutation. In any case, we know that the virus that's circulating now seems potentially a little bit more infectious than the 1.0 version in Wuhan. Um, long story short, this thing is airborne. Japanese researchers have been saying for a long time. Finally, we got the WHO to kind of like. Yeah, okay, admit it, but they didn't have... So one researcher today actually said, it's 50% of all infections, this airborne thing. WHO doesn't recognize that number yet, per se, but it's pretty serious. How do they, how do they know that? How, do, how can you know where really the infection comes well. from, whether it's airborne or droplets? Like, how do they know it's 50% of the infections? Okay, so the, the, so he estimated, he actually, remember the, uh, the Washington choir outbreak? There was a choir singing. About Can't 50, keep track of them all. 55 people uh, were infected. Okay, so this choir singing, this singer only stood within six feet of like two people during the entire singing. He would, and there's only like a couple 10-minute breaks in between. This person, this per, one person in the room who had the virus would have had to spit on 53, 50 other people in the 10-minute breaks in order to have infected them all. But at the end of the day, he infected 53 people. And this is why this is one of those things where, you know, the fact that this droplet ballistic infection of uh, launching and spitting it onto 50 other people is unlikely. It was most likely the singing and the aerosols and floating in the air. Does that make sense? So, Got it. so we have a quite rich, just a quick, let's, again, good break point to interject a question from our Q&A. And for those that are online, you can type your questions in the Q&A or the Zoom webinar chat. Um, but the question is, are you surprised we aren't seeing outbreaks tied to air travel at this point, 500,000 people a day flying around? Or is this, is this again, your circulation issue where the, their, their circulation systems are good enough? Well, first of all, America doesn't have enough co- good contact tracing to know whether it was airplane or not, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in South Korea, they tested like 50,000, 80,000 people for that one nightclub outbreak. Um, 
The U.S., we don't. But we know that, for example, the reason it traveled from Iran to Canada, from Europe to New York, from China to all these different parts of the world was because of air travel. It was because of air travel. But it could be air and, travel and one person that got it and then, then, and then went to that location. Or are you saying that you don't believe that the air filtration systems of, a, of an airline are, are, as everyone seems, not everyone, a the, lot of people seem to claim are good enough to kill it. Does, the airplane does have good filtration system. I read somewhere that um, I think an airplane turns over all of its air within six to 10 minutes, depending on the airplane, yeah. which is pretty good turnover of air. Uh, you know, stagnant air in a room, if you only had one door open, would take 45 minutes to clear out. Uh, with two doors open, it's seven minutes. But I think airflow in an airplane is pretty decent, but the density is really hard. The end of the day, the problem is it's hard to trace because unlike other viruses, uh, unlike the original SARS 1.0 from 17, 18 years ago, 17 years ago, that one basically, if I got off a plane, didn't show symptoms, and then I got sick, I didn't need to trace everyone on the plane. But with this one, you're, tr you're transmitting it asymptomatically as well. And that is the other pernicious part of the virus. The fact that people are transmitting asymptomatically makes tracing so hard. Like, who gave it to you? I don't know who gave it to me. Someone who breathed on me. Someone who coughed and spit on me when they were eating or talking. I don't know where it came from. And the fact that they think there's anywhere from 30 to 50% of all virus carriers are asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic, and that they're infectious during that no symptom period means it is really hard to trace. But, but where and this people is are also struggling, really hard to stop. But, but where people are struggling is, uh, you know, I, I, and I, I'm going to oversimplify what you just said, but 40 people inside would be worse than... You know, a foot, you know, take Ohio State. They're talking about having fans in their stadium. I think it holds 100,000 people. So they're talking about 25,000 people in the stands. Theoretically, 25,000 people outside is better than 40 people inside. And I guess it, that, that's a little hard for people to wrap their arms around. But I, I essentially think that's what you're saying. It's just you're inside, unless yeah. there's super ventilation, even a small number inside is much worse than a large number outside. With yeah. masks. Uh Absolutely. And, and yes, there's two points there. One, mask compliance. In other countries like Asia, people wear masks all the time. It's a sign of disrespect. It's like me spitting in your face or me running around naked in my underwear. That, you know, <laughs> if you don't wear masks, I'll be honest, because yeah. it is a sign of respect that you, you know, you put on a mask uh, because my mask protects you, uh, your mask protects me. But in the U.S., it's a political statement. And so, yes, it'll be great if we had stadiums with everyone wearing masks, but how are you going to enforce that? Well, you just eject someone who, who, who doesn't wear a mask. I mean, that's, how do you, that's like saying, how do they not enforce not smoking in stadiums? At some point, I'm sure at that point, people well, are like, oh, this is never going to happen. smoking, we have actually laws, by the way. No, no, you know. okay, so, so you effectively create a, a law. Like, it's a private premises. But by the way, why not? <laughs> the, 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 the thing, well, first of all, you can create, there's two kinds of mandates. There's individual penalty, as in I give you a ticket, or there's a, a no, business out of the says, and you can't sell to underage minors alcohol or, or tobacco. I don't think you but need to do is, like, I don't think you need you know, to throw people away, but for sporting events or a concert, someone's not going to want to get kicked out of the stadium to, to not watch the game. So you just, but you how know, many enforcement guys are you going to have? Because here's the thing, like, even if there's 20% uh, or 
you know, 30% who don't wear it. Then everyone it. could get infected. All you need everyone, is a few your bad cloth actors. mask does not protect you from, from these aerosols. The, right. the cloth mask catches your droplets, your micro droplets and, and your big droplets. It doesn't actually prevent you unless you get an N95 or KN95. Look, I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier. Everything has a risk, right? So to the extent that you can reduce your risk. And look, you're not going to prevent if an entire section says, okay, we're going to throw our masks off into the air. But Yeah, I but mean, it's it's it, what I think what he's trying enforceable. to say is, is one person can – it's like one bad actor can ruin it for the group. But again, yeah. I just want to like stick on this distinction between indoor and outdoor, right? <laughs> if, if this game is outdoors, even if someone – doesn't wear a mask in your section are you pretty safe or no i i i don't really know how loud are people shouting you know are loud. you sitting there quietly at like a concert or no. you're shouting you know at top of your lungs top shouting is really risky are you right? taking your mask off to eat every two seconds and yeah. shove a hot are dog in and drink a soda and drinking soda this is why restaurants are really tricky by the way um uh, some banks analyze that restaurants purchases, specifically the restaurants, not Amazon, any other purchases on credit cards was specifically related to infection rates, local infection rates three weeks late, but not any other purchases, just restaurants, which again, was, was there a distinction between indoor and outdoor seating for that? I don't know. I'm, it was an overall analysis, but it's, right. it's clearly, I, I look, I agree. I do outdoor seating restaurants. And I think outdoor is much better than anything. I would, I would say it's infinitely better by so multiple what, magnitudes. But, maybe just because we got off track. If we go back to where I started, what would you actually do now? Or like, what, what is your, like, if you had, looking at the situation now in this country, what's your A, assessment, and B, if you were in charge, what would you do? Like balancing you're, health you're and economic. doctor. <laughs> if if yeah. I, well, first of all, I believe scientists should have more political power. If Fauci's and others were running the world, it would be a lot more different. That is not I happening. would, first of all, Defense Production Act, okay? Uh, instead of Trump invoking it for sausages and burgers, you invoke it for N95s and PPEs right away. I personally think everyone should have an N95, but the thing is, it's not available enough for everyone because if everyone got them, there wouldn't be enough for healthcare workers. And healthcare workers definitely need them more because... If our healthcare worker system, uh, you know, workforce collapses, our hospitals collapse too. So I, that's one thing I would do is, but that's a little pie in the sky. I think the main thing is that governors need to have mask mandates and mandates with teeth. You know, in some states, I won't name the state, but they have the mandates for workplaces, but it's enforced by the Department of Health and not by any, um, you know, criminal well, justice system. So. You know, the Department of Health has no power or no manpower to enforce this, but actual enforceable things, either civilian side with a ticket, if you own, you know, and fine, or make all the businesses required for anyone entering. If you don't do it, you lose your business license. If you don't want to require patrons to wear masks. I think those are the two main enforcement kind of things and with teeth, as I said. Uh, lockdowns. If it gets really bad enough, we do need to do another lockdown. And just so you know, our lockdown. Uh, and when you say lockdown, like you know, when you say it has to get really bad for another lockdown, what does that actually mean? Like, how do you define? I mean, I guess we're all struggling. Like, so so there's business closures, and then there are stay-at-home orders. 
like the harshest, just so you know, I don't think America is going to be able to go to Wuhan style lockdowns in which no one was allowed to leave their residence. No one. If you live in a condo building, a, a townhouse building, you're not allowed to leave. Uh, and then ba- they basically brought food to your door. That's they never going to happen in America. People and took them out of their apartments as well. Yeah, that's not going to yeah, happen. But that was actually uh, for a different reason, because they took them out of apartments because they knew that about two thirds of all infections actually were between family members. Basically, once one person got infected, the yeah. rest of the whole family got infected. Yeah. And to stop that, they actually had to remove the person who was sick from the rest of the house. And again, that is not possible in the U.S. But look, lockdowns, lockdown fatigue. U.S. is so much lockdown fatigue right now. I don't think it's going to work. But mask ordinances, enforce them all. Enforce all the mask ordinances. And ventilation. I would say, I think number one question besides sports is schools. And the problem with many American schools is they're built a long time ago. They don't have two-point airway systems, as in, you know, besides opening a window and a door, they don't actually have good good enough ventilation flow. And they, of course, don't have UV desanitization of the air. Um, And I assume you're talking not just elementary schools or public schools. You're talking just schools from college, all levels of school. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. All buildings, all buildings were those classrooms. So offices as well, I would assume. Yeah, some modern offices have pretty good ventilation, but again, it's really tricky because we know from call centers, there was a call center epidemic in Korea and everyone, almost like two thirds of the people on the same side of the building got infected. And of course, they, their cubicles were, you know, six feet away from each other. Two thirds of everyone got infected because it's call center. They're talking all day long. And call centers are inherently dangerous because, and people in workplace talk. So this is why you have to wear masks, indoor definitely. And, you know, with the airflow, it's just a matter of what is, what is the air turnaround? And do we need to test everyone? Because there's other thing is, we don't have resources to do, even do enough testing. There's this thing called pool testing where everyone, say, in a nursing home, or nursing homes are high risk and you know, we should test everyone. Let's just say everyone in a dorm. We pull everyone every day, you know, scrubs their nose, puts it in thing. Everyone does a pool testing. If anyone's positive, this whole dorm goes shut, shuts down, right? Because probably they were already kind of transmitting between themselves. Instead of testing 100 people in the dorm uh, individually, basically pull all their samples. If anyone tests positive, they all go quarantine. And I think that's probably what we have to do for colleges. And fraternity parties... There's been so many fraternity party outbreaks already this summer, from UC Berkeley to University of Washington. These, we're talking about hundreds of cases of kids, college cases, and that's not even regular semester yet. So do you think, I mean, we're starting to see some colleges say, like, I mean, your, your, your former, where you taught at Harvard, has gone online only. Do you think that's a reality for most of the country or do you think we're going to actually, I mean, it seems like colleges right now are sort of in this limbo phase of trying to figure this out. And they say one thing one week and they're starting to shift every day. Where do you think we end up? I mean, it looks like it's obviously state by state, but I'd be curious for your perspective on on colleges. I think we should do outdoor classes, you know, and obviously remote when you're, once you get to the winter time, obviously Indoors, most likely, what you have to do, but I think we should just go remote. The hardest thing, I think college students can learn 
remote. Okay. I think if you're disciplined enough, which again, it's, it's if it is possible. My, my worry is elementary school kids. You know, I have a kid who's like seven years old and it is hard for kids to be remote right now. He's mastered zoom better than me. So I, I'm really worried for elementary school kids. And that is the main problem because daycares, elementary school kids, there's no such thing as distancing. Kids don't, kids are not, well, and they're wear, not going to, and they're not going to wear masks. Right. They're just not going to do, they proper... do, but they're not really good at it. You know, <laughs> they touch gonna... things, they touch each other. It's going to be very difficult to manage that. I know it's, it's really hard. This is why this new pool testing strategy where, you know, uh, you test immediately. Um, by the way, it takes about three days on average. So you, you, on average, you show symptoms on day five if you get infected. But you can start sh- testing positive starting day three and four. Not as good on day three, but it's, it's, it's definitely possible. I think in certain ways, we need to have like pool testing at all workplaces, whether, you know, either dorms so- or, or workplaces, offices on a weekly basis and potentially rotate the staff in and out, you know, co- staff cohort A, staff cohort B, rotating in and out. Um, by the way, the porn industry, do- I don't know if you know enough about the porn industry, they actually have really good testing standards. You have to get a bill of clearance before your performance and then a bill of clearance right after. And your bill of clearance certificate is only valid for a small window of time. It's, it's very There's intense, many but- things I could say right now, and I'm going to withhold... Can you kind of put the, some of this pool testing idea to numbers? How many tests in the United States need to be performed in a day for the proper amount of pool testing that will allow both schools and offices indoors to be fully open? So first of all, it's just a pertinent perspective. U.S. does about 600, 650 tests per day. Um, pool testing, what it would do is you pool these people together and you one, run one test. Do you get that? So you can pull 100 people together and run one test. It's a more efficient way of testing. But it doesn't tell you who got infected. It just tells you that this cluster, this dorm, this office cluster, this has it, right. has, someone in there has it. You know? And so it's, it's a more efficient way of testing. And you would probably, if someone tested positive in your workplace or your elementary school, you probably would lock down the entire class anyways. So it's a more efficient way. Now, in terms of how many, I don't know, but you, you would have to do it on a regular basis. Right now, we're only testing if I got the sniffles or if my family member or friend got sick and I was a close contact, then maybe you get a test. But right now, in terms of asymptomatic testing, you don't. But the studies that came out says we need to find enough. We need to find at least half the, or a quarter of the asymptomatic cases in order to slam this infection rate uh, low enough. So we have to do the basically this pool testing. And now I I think we're going to get better at the testing volume. And I think we're going to get the price lower. The issue is, can we do it on a mass scale? We basically need to go into the dorm every week and scrub everyone's nose every week. You know, that's, it's the logistics. In in the end, like the PPEs and all these kind of things, they're not some magical vaccine formula. These are basically things you could just order, but we have not organized our testing well enough, our PPB, PPE supplies well enough. Are we going to, if we can't do those things, are we going to basically 
do these regular interval pool testing well enough? I don't know. That's, that's what I'm really nervous about. So when you look at, well, I just wanted to, someone had asked a question about herd immunity and just sort of how you think, I mean, is it even, I mean, you're holding your head, is, is herd immunity even possible? What's the threshold? Like, just, you know, give us your, I guess, your viewpoint on, on, on this. I mean, obviously Sweden has tried it, I guess. Um, Terribly, unsuccessfully. Sweden has one of the highest mortality rates and cases rates in the world, uh, especially in Europe, because of what they try to do. Herd immunity, for those who are not familiar, it's say there's a crowded room of 50 people. You have a virus, I don't, we're on opposite sides, and there's a big you know, party and dance in the middle. If most of the people in the middle have immunity, the, fact, the chance that the virus will hop skip across the room from you to me mm-hmm. is low. But if most of them don't have it, then it can easily hop skip back to me. Um, this is a vaccine strategy. No one usually talks about herd immunity outside of vaccine. If you vaccinate high enough, you can protect the rest. Like basically, but no one ever does the reverse. Meaning, no one talks about herd in the reverse sense of infect enough people so yeah. that everyone has the, it. The the, the right. current herd immunity being used by a lot of conservative pundits is a plow through. Let's just infect them all. And right. but that also the odds are, it's terrible because that everyone for gets a virus this, this high, you need 75, 80%. At minimum, 60% before the herd effect kicks in. But you need 75, 80%. But that's really insane. 80% means let's sicken four people to save one. That's And you know there's a lot of people who actually have long-term um, morbidity you know, whether it's heart disease, diabetes, brain damage, kidney damage. What do you think think the infection rate is today? Like when you assess the infection rate, where do you actually think it is? We see a lot of numbers. You mean, so the infection rate, there's different things. There's attack rate and there's R-naught. The R-naught is basically for every infected person, that person infects two, three, four. Right now we think it's like close to three to four people. Um, but it depends on the situation. And this is what concerns you back in January, to yeah, be clear. Yeah, this is what made me go, holy mother of God, on Twitter, uh, scared the bejesus out of some people. Um, Maryland governor's office actually said uh, it was my tweet that made them stand up. Um, but it, it was, this is the number that basically is really, really high. And we again, we don't have a vaccine for it. So the R on any given day, depending on if it's under containment, the R current time, is can be lower because if you have distancing, if you have masks, right? If you have early uh, contact tracing and quarantine, all these things lower the uh, the current R. Um, and so it depends state to state. There's a there's a website actually that tells you uh, R. It's called RT Live or something like that. It's you can actually see the current R in your state, and it depends. Also on testing as well, if you find enough cases. But right now, all the Sunbelt states have a really high RRT. Um, but it's basically, right now, there's too much in the background. I think that's the problem with schools or, and businesses. It's Even if, say, 1% of, uh, of the sick people will transmit to another. Let's just say, for example, uh, let's just say assume a low attack rate of 1%. You know, you expose 100 people, only 1 people get it. If you have like 100,000 cases, we have like 70,000 new cases a day. So we're floating around like half a million to a million active cases, okay? That's 
1% of that is a huge number of people. But if we're at a low number of cases, 1% of like uh, 10 or 100 people is very negligible. And this is our problem. We have, you know, you have safe reopenings in Denmark and Norway. People are like, oh, Denmark did it. Norway did it. Great. Well, New Zealand today. No cases. They have no cases to go around. Israel, right. they reopened way too fast, way too fast. Netanyahu opened way too fast. They almost crushed the curve and boom. Israel now has a faster explosion of cases in the U.S. And it was, they opened, opened schools and had to close down a whole bunch of schools again. So for our country as well. So for our country, it looks like at this point, it's going to come down to, you know, when is there a vaccine? Right. Yeah. And since we only have about five minutes left, can you give us your latest thoughts on when you think we'll see a vaccine, what vaccines are most likely to succeed? And then to the extent there wasn't a vaccine, how effective antivirals? I know we have remdesivir now. Are there other antivirals on the horizon? And can Mm -hmm. we run just on anti on antivirals at this point? Right. So. I'll do the antiviral question first. There are various drugs that are being tested. Um, Remdesivir just being one of them, favipapir as well. And there's another class of drugs called monoclonal antibodies, which basically how they created was they synthesized the antibodies from these people who recovered, right? Now, it shows true paths. You've heard of convalescent plasma. You just directly transfuse the plasma of someone survived into a critically ill. That, we think, also works with many other viruses. That's harder to do. Another is to synthesize a drug out of all the antibodies from someone who survived. These are called monoclone. You clone. You make clones of the antibodies, and you put them in the drug. These are very expensive, but they will likely work. I, ex- I expect them to likely work because we know that it is a class of drugs that will work. Very expensive, temperature sensitive, very expensive. Um, you know, we're actually, uh, our group is actually trying, trying to test other vitamins that could work. I think s- some people think vitamin D could work potentially against really ill people as well. But um, in terms of vaccine, vaccine, there's many groups working on it. China's group uh, is doing about a dozen of vaccine. U.S. has funded five. UK has several as well. We've kind of co-invested, uh, invested, but US did not invest in any WHO ones because pharma hates, WHO says basically give up uh, part of your pharma profits. Pharma didn't want to do it. So we have several groups working on these. We will get a vaccine. Like for example, China's already testing one of theirs in UAE. They already approved one of their vaccine for their soldiers without the full safety, but you know, that's China and their soldiers. <laughs> Um, they're testing UAE. The Oxford group is testing theirs in uh, Brazil right now. Pretty good results so far. I've, I've heard through the grapevine. So we will have some, I think by the fall, the issue is scale up. We'll have maybe a couple million uh, for healthcare workers in the fall. I think we will have uh, enough for healthcare workers beginning in the fall, not all of them, but, but the scale, we need billions of doses. Like we need to vaccinate. If it, we need a vaccine, uh, like, and we don't know if we, and we don't have to know. We don't yet know if we have to vaccinate them every year or once ever. Yeah, exactly. The issue is some vaccines you need boosters every so often. Some vaccines are you're good for life, like smallpox. Uh, not smallpox, uh, but chickenpox, for example. You're good. Once so you have it, chicken- if you were in charge, 
like pre-vaccine, since we don't know when we're going to have those billions of doses, what should and shouldn't be open? Like movie theaters, I assume based on what you said, should be closed. Indoor restaurant dining, closed. Where does, you know, sitting inside at a ball game without great ventilation, I assume the same. Um, What about theme parks, which is, yes, you walk around outside, but every ride is like Disney World is open with tens of thousands of people flowing in. Does that make sense to you? Theme parks is that the lines, a lot of the rides are indoors, by the way, um, but the lines snaking through, through these hallways of these rides are really, really long. And I've seen photos, not everyone's wearing a mask, as expected. In America, there's too much rugged individualism. That's my risk right now, that there's too many people together not wearing enough masks. If we, had, if we were like Asia and we had 95, 99% compliance on masks, I'd be happy with stadiums. And also they said, uh, they actually did a study in subways. subways. If you keep the windows open, and no one talks. The key thing is no one talks and everyone wears a mask. This risk is actually low. So if you watch a movie I wish that would be and true, no one talks. No way that's happening. I know. But People if, can't if you watch even a movie, shut no their mouths up in no the quiet eats, car on Metro North. No popcorn <laughs> eating whatsoever. No one eats. Theoretically, the risk is really low as if you don't open your mouth. Right, and so you're saying a movie theater with no popcorn, no, where everyone just sits and watches the movie quietly for two hours. <laughs> you're o- and and is somewhat distanced. You're okay with that. The problem is, but then you lose all the concession revenue, right? So. Well, look, that, that's the problem that we're trying to get at. Is like everyone's trying to figure out what the proper balance is, and you know, I guess it's sort of interesting to us. Like, you know, schools are struggling to open, and sort of it almost feels like you know, with what LA said today, it feels like schools are starting to give up. Um, and we're we're really focused on like what happens to college, what happens to college sports, and. Um, it, you know, it, it sounds like it's getting worse in terms of the predictions or, or what, what will actually happen. Um, but, but, it's, you know. it's becoming more dire. I, I would say it's coming more dire. And for the governors out there, especially of these Sunbelt states who have not acted yet, I think the argument of saying we still have hospital beds free, you know, if it's true, is the worst idea ever. Because think about it. If, oh, you don't have to buckle your seatbelt, we have hospital beds free. You don't need to wear a helmet when you ride uh, your motorcycle at 70 miles an hour. We have hospital beds free. You don't need to wear a condom and prevent HIV or STDs. We have hospital beds free. That's, a, that's the worst argument, by the way, in, in, in public health or medicine that a public political leader can make. But they're making them right now. And so it is just insane. I would say, again, bottom line, indoor things, really risky, really risky. Definitely don't eat with anyone else near you indoors if you're indoors and you're completely not talking maybe it's okay subways maybe it's okay install ventilation install uv light in your hvac ac systems and again distance but indoor distancing is a oxymoron this is why i don't i don't trust bars and restaurants because when you get drunk many barriers of distances start breaking down someone asked if you could rank order if you had a rank order level of risk of transmission, offices in Manhattan, attending a sporting event, concerts, or schools, how would you rank order those four activities? If it's an outdoor sporting event and you're not the athlete, you know, in the locker room, steamy locker room, outdoor sporting event and concerts, outdoor concerts, 
okay. With more shouting, indoor, it's a little more nervous. Um, Workplaces and schools, risky um, because they're so indoors and lots of people congregating together. Um, And so those are my, and again, restaurants, it falls in between, between outdoor restaurants, low risk, indoor restaurants, medium risk, bars, and nightclubs where there's partying and, you know, grinding against each other, really risky. And that's just the fact of life, I think. So just one more on on the vaccine. You seem optimistic about the vaccine. Um, You said it's going to be available or at least one will be available, you think, in in the fall for healthcare workers. When do we get to scale? When when do we get to the point where, you know, most or enough of the U.S. has it that we actually reach the fabled herd immunity? Yeah, this is this is the thing we need to scale up as soon as possible. But I think it won't happen until spring of 2021. And then massive, widely available availability 2020, you know, summer of 2021. Um, And it could even go into 2022 before the last people who need it get it. And my fear is at the end of the day, it's actually the frontline workers, the grocery store workers the janitors working at these places who need it more than the wealthy person in their little secluded enclave up on top of the hill because they're distancing and whatnot. But what's going to happen is the pricing is going to be, because pharma has not promised it will be affordable. They have not made that promise. Azar has not made that promise. My worry is that the rich and connected will get it first and the people who really need it, you know, the frontline workers, the, first responders, the nurse, some of the that should be up to the, That should be up last. to the government, shouldn't it, though, right? So yeah. if you're sitting here, just kind of to wrap up, because I know you had to go um, at 445, you're sitting here, summer 21. Or is life back to normal one year from now? How normal so. are our, li- our pre-pandemic normal are our lives? I hope so. I'm like 75% common. Uh, confident that by summertime this this time next year it will be back to mostly normal but there's lots of depending on how you define normal normal going into walking down your desolate main street where Uh, no business is in business pre-pandemic not well okay completely normal back okay the world will never be you don't have to answer that question he was was asking the health question but the world never sees but i think pre-normal uh It'll depend on what, how acceptable normal. Back to school, I think that's a key. Going to movies again, going sporting again. Again, those kind of normal things, I think by the end of the summer, 2021, we will get there. So that's, that's the hard part. It really is a long haul until we get there. And, and 50% of people right now say they don't know if they're going to get the vaccine. A quarter say no way. Uh, are you getting the vaccine of course i'm getting a vaccine the vaccine like i'm getting a 5g phone too like what what kind of question is that look this is literally the thing that will bring our economy back rolling again and the science is clearly out there and we don't want to rush it for sure we want to test it out carefully but we will get a vaccine because there's two dozen vaccines being developed and they will work to some degree and maybe with a combination, you will work, but only if people get them and take them. And right now, there's 
The conspiracy theories out there are growing. They're actually growing stronger. And this is what worries me. But I think incredibly, the the day, do you want to live, you know, take well, the vaccine? Be a little Darwin action there, though, the people that don't get the vaccine. Right. Well, if they don't want to get the vaccine, they can get to the back of the line. The people who do can buy my vaccine. That, that's my general sick. attitude. <laughs> uh, Eric, Rich is going to try and end this before I got some diet advice. I mean, you're a nutritionist. <laughs> He's going to tell you don't do anything that you do, Brandon, for sure. <laughs> There's no chance anything you do is proper. What do you think about intermittent fasting, wife, doctor? You know, yeah. she's, she's always, if, if, I'm lo- if she's losing an argument, she would always end the argument with, at least I'm not the overweight nutritionist in the family. And so <laughs> <laughs> then it's party's over. Uh, uh, Eric, but you've been happy to do another podcast on nutrition uh, you've been incredibly generous. Uh, I know we, we, this is not normally the type of group you talk to. Uh, it was great to have your insights and really thank you. We'll make sure everyone who was on gets all your contact information to follow up. All right. Thanks Take so much. Care, Take care. All Thanks right. a lot. Talk soon.